This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Nobody threatens Hoffer. I got records. I got tapes. They're done. I had to put you into this thing. Sooner or later, everybody put here as a date when he's going to go. I know how you feel, Frank. Trust me. I know how you feel. Well, that from the trailer for the film The Irishman, which tells the story of Frank the Irishman Sheeran. Now, we know Frank Sheeran was a high-ranking official in the Teamsters. We know he had uh, links to organized crime, in particular the Buffalino crime family. Uh, Much of uh, Frank's uh, life story was told in the book I Heard You Paint Houses. And the Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman, then is obviously based on that book. Now, it's a part of this story. I mean, it's, I guess, a spoiler. Yeah, if you haven't seen the film yet, the movie's about more than just this. But uh, it makes the assertion, and indeed, before his death in 2003, Frank Sheeran had specifically made the claim that he was the one who killed former Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa. Hoffa, of course, uh, vanished in 1975, and his death, well, his presumed death, has uh, remained a mystery ever since. So, does this answer that question? I think a lot of people are going to come away from this movie thinking that the question now has an answer. But what does the historical record tell us? The movie certainly makes a claim. There was a fascinating uh, deep dive into uh, all of this this week in the National Post. And it involves, or rather, you know, the White National Post picked up the story from the Washington Post, and it involves uh, a lawyer um, who was a key part in all of this. And it maybe helps us answer uh, some of these questions. Well, joining us to talk more about it is the uh, author of that piece, Manuel Roig Franzia, is a feature reporter with the Washington Post, WashingtonPost.com. Manuel, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, nice to be with you. Uh, so, what got you digging into this story, first of all? Well, Glenn Zeitz, who is the attorney who you mentioned, is somebody who I'd come across in previous reporting. He uh, is a, an attorney who has tangled in the past with none other than Donald Trump. Uh, and he gave me a call and said, uh, who is the mafia reporter at the Washington Post? <laughs> <laughs> I said, um, I think we'd need to take you to a time machine. Right. <laughs> but uh, what do you have in mind? Uh, and what he had in mind was super interesting. All of these years, he has kept boxes and boxes and boxes of documents related to his representation of the main character in that film, Frank Sheeran, the Irishman. And he invited me up to New Jersey to take a look at what he had. Uh, so how did uh, Glenn Zeitz then get involved with, with Frank Sheeran? And at what point did they get involved with one another? It's a great story. So in the late 1970s in the Philadelphia area and in southern New Jersey, it's hard to imagine that that 
uh, that little of a time in the past, there was a mob war going on. <laughs> uh, people were getting gunned down in the streets, and Glenn Zeitz represented a alleged mobster who had one of those classic mafia names, Lou Buttons. Uh, and one of the co-defendants in that case was Frank Sheeran, the Irishman in the movie. Uh, after that case was over, because Frank Sheeran had a habit of getting in trouble with the uh, authorities, even though he'd been cleared in that case, he was indicted again. And there was an attorney in Philadelphia who was sort of helping him find an attorney for that next trial. And he thought to himself, I know only one attorney who could keep up with Frank Sheeran drinking. <laughs> keep up with him at yeah. the bar. And that was this guy, Glenn Zeitz. And that put the two of them together, their love of a good stout drink. Right. And so it's interesting in your piece and you talk about or, or Mr. Zeitz talks about, uh, you know, that that day that, um, you know, we was finally introduced to, to Frank, who was a really big, intimidating guy. And even before you, you got to meet Frank, uh, that there were, you know, a lot of scary looking guys that you had to get through first. Yeah, this is uh, a place called the Rickshaw, which is just a classic straight out of a Hollywood casting uh, back lot uh, that was in a place called Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And it was just one of these places where, you know, tough guys, uh, wise guys, teamsters, truck drivers, a lot of uh, guys with calloused hands would hang out at the bar. And when Glenn went there to meet his prospective client, uh, you kind of had to walk past all those guys, and they were wondering, even though it was a public place, why you were there. And they wanted to know what your business was. And in this case, he had a very good answer for that question. He was there to see Frank Sharon. And the way that he described it is that it was like the Red Sea parting, <laughs> and he was allowed to go to the end of the bar where Frank Sharon was sitting with his typical bottle of Chianti. All right. So, and, and this was all after Hoffa's disappearance then, is that right? Yeah, this is 1979 or so. Okay. Uh, Hoffa had disappeared in 1975, and Frank Sheeran said something to Glenn Zeitz, according to Glenn Zeitz, in that very first conversation. He, well, first he asked him a very off-color question that I would have to sanitize a little bit for your audience. He, he asked him if he was a skirt chaser, but he, <laughs> used, a different, <laughs> he used a different phrase. <laughs> um, but then he said that he wanted a commitment from Glenn Zeitz that he would pound these two ideas into the head of the public uh, and into the heads of the FBI, that he had nothing to do with the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa and that he would never rat on anybody. Once they'd agreed that Glenn Zeitz would handle it that way, uh, he had a new client, and he handed, it, and he handed him an envelope with $10,000 cash in it. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, look, theoretically, it's possible that, you know, that Frank Sheeran emphasized that because he wanted to cover up something he had done, that, that maybe he was guilty of that murder, but wanted people to, to think otherwise. Uh, but what, what has convinced Glenn Zeitz that, that Frank Sheeran was telling the truth? 
Well, they got to know each other really well over the years. Uh, I've been around a lot of attorneys and their clients. Uh, some of them have a real arm's length relationship. These two became very dear friends. They were drinking buddies. Uh, they, they talked about uh, meeting at different restaurants where they would have osobuco and things like that. They, the relationship became quite intimate. Um, and I would say that not only did Glenn Zeitz believe Frank Sharon that he was not involved in the Jimmy Hoffa disappearance, but almost everyone who has examined this case, who has studied it in granular detail, and believe me, there is a whole legion of people who are obsessed with this case. No one would have ever said that Frank Sharon was the killer. Frank Sharon was quite opposite of that in the minds of all of these people who studied him. He was the guy who said to someone else, kill that guy. He wasn't the one with the gun in his hand. What's interesting, too, is that, you know, even though shortly before his death, Frank Sheeran did claim that he, he killed Jimmy Hoffa, he offered many other versions uh, of what happened or what might have happened. Yeah, you know, he wanted to sell a book. He talked uh, about a Vietnamese hitman being responsible for the disappearance and killing of Jimmy Hoffa. He blamed it on Richard Nixon. He blamed it on Nixon's attorney general, John Mitchell. He blamed it on someone high up in the Republican Party. He even blamed it uh, at one point on a couple of Sicilian war orphans. He was all over the map. And Glenn Zeitz has an answer for that. Frank Sheeran needed money. He'd gone to prison. He'd been convicted in two different cases. He'd lost his pension. He'd lost his salary. He was desperate to put some food on the table and also desperate to leave some money for his daughters. He had four daughters. Mm -hmm. And all of these factors combined, at least in the mind of Glenn Zeitz, this attorney who I spent so much time with, and many others who are very familiar with Frank Sheeran, uh, that he had a real motivation to tell a more dramatic story. Put yourself in the seat of a publisher. Would you be more interested in a book that said the Hoffa disappearance mystery is still a mystery, or a book that said, I killed Jimmy Hoffa? But what's interesting, though, and, and from your piece, as you point out, that, that Zeitz still believes that... Maybe Sheeran might know. Maybe he was in the vicinity uh, of the, the murder when it happened, but that he's pretty convinced that, that Sheeran was not the, the trigger man. Yeah. This is something that I did not know before getting involved in the research for this piece. We're all familiar with the attorney-client privilege, right? The mm -hmm. client says something to the attorney, and it remains secret. Uh, I did not know that that privilege extended beyond the death of the client. Uh, and for that reason, Glenn has to be a little bit careful about what he says. Uh, so careful that he hired a very expensive ethics attorney, a professor, uh, to determine what he could say and what he could not say and what documents he could release and what documents he could not release. Uh, I believe that Glenn still has uh, some information in his head that might provide more clues that he is just not at liberty to divulge at this point. Uh, it's conceivable that something could happen that would somehow break the ice and allow him to say 
a little bit more. But I don't think we've heard the end of the story. So as you say, there, there are a lot of documents uh, that, that he still possesses, some he can share, some he, he still believes that he cannot. What, what, what do those documents, or at least the ones that you were able to see, what, what kind of a picture do they paint then uh, about, about Frank Shearer? A couple of things. Uh, he has depositions uh, from various cases, and he has uh, transcripts of testimony, uh, and he also has plea agreements. Uh, all of these court records tend to be buried deep in archives and very hard to, to access. And w- one of the more interesting ones that I read uh, involved a guy named Charlie Allen, who had pleaded guilty uh, to a series of crimes in return for the government uh, giving him a lesser sentence, uh, but he had to provide a lot of information. And in that plea agreement, he says that Frank Sheeran told him to kill some people. Um, that really places context on who Frank Sheeran was. Um, the movie wants to portray him as a uh, very active hitman, a guy who killed lots and lots of people. Um, the records don't support that. There's, there's nothing in the records that uh, point him as the shooter. Uh, the, the other thing in the records is uh, a lot of private investigator research that was conducted by an investigator who was hired by Zeitz, the attorney. And all of these guys are FBI agents. They're all people who were intimately involved in the case uh, around Jimmy Hoffa and also around other Teamsters-related um, uh, crimes. And none of these guys think of Frank Sharon as a hitman, not a single one of them. And uh, that seems pretty significant because these are people who listen to wire conversations. There were, there were informants who were wearing wires, uh, and not a single one of them says, yeah, we think it could maybe be that guy. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like, you know, when, when we hear that a movie's based on a true story, I think we kind of assume that, that certain artistic liberties are going to be taken. I mean, even Goodfellas, ostensibly about Henry Hill, kind of takes some, some liberties with that story. But, I mean, in this case, this movie is asserting something very specific uh, about something historical, that Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa. And even if Frank Sheeran had motivation for claiming that in a book, what's your sense of why, why Netflix, why Scorsese, why even De Niro were prepared to tell this this tale as well i mean it's a it's a good it's a good tale um if you believe it uh and that there's this very interesting anecdote in our story that i hope some of your readers will get a chance to um to to read in detail um here in washington dc there's a well-known hoffa expert by the name of dan Moltea. uh he hosts a, a dinner once a year for a bunch of published authors well robert de niro uh is friends with one of those authors and he came here to washington dc and he attended the dinner and he pulled dan Moldea to the side they're actually sitting underneath a cuckoo clock at this German restaurant. Um, And they start talking about this book, I Heard You Paint Houses. And De Niro is super excited about it. He just thinks it's a great story. Clearly, he's looking at 
it as a role that he could play. And Moldea, this guy who has studied the case for years, tells him, you are getting conned. <laughs> conned was the word he used. Uh, and the reaction is, not good. De Niro is, gets really angry. Oh, wow. And uh, the conversation uh, ends very badly. Um, you know, as, as, as a story that you're going to put uh, on the big screen, or in this case, <laughs> for a lot of people on the smaller screen because they're watching it on Netflix, um, it has a nice arc, and it's quite, and it's quite definitive. Uh, for me, one of the reasons why this was such an appealing subject matter for the Washington Post to delve into in detail is that it kind of raises this question about what film what role film plays in shaping our understanding of history uh, and, and whether what's up on the screen uh, becomes the received wisdom, becomes what most people think is history. Uh, because let's face it, a lot of people won't be reading my article or won't be reading the books. Um, and, uh, and they'll come away from this thinking that, it has been solved. In fact, I was just at lunch with a group of really smart guys, um, very successful people in Washington, D.C. They had read the book. Uh, they didn't even know that I was working on this piece. And they were all convinced they, from reading the book and watching the film that the mystery had been solved. And so I thought, wow, if, if, if that could be sold to these guys who are partners in law firms and successful businessmen mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, other sophisticated people, well, what, what would the uh, impact of it be on someone who was perhaps a, a little less used to looking deep down into the details? Yeah. Well, people should read your piece. Uh, it is up at WashingtonPost.com. It's also reprinted in the National Post, NationalPost.com. Now, well, it's been great talking to you here today. Thank you so much for making some time for us. My pleasure. Anytime. I appreciate this. All the best to you. There you go. That's uh, Manuel Roig Franzia. He's a feature reporter with the Washington Post, WashingtonPost.com. And as mentioned, uh, this uh, piece is up at NationalPost.com as well. Uh, so kind of an interesting uh, contribution uh, from this lawyer, Mr. Zeitz, and what he may know about all of this. 403-974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.